start in Psalm 23 this morning, 23rd Psalm, probably other than maybe the Lord's Prayer, most famous passage of Bible Scripture in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures, and he leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. All right, Psalm 23 was written by King David. Very famous, and I suppose you've heard it many times, quoted it, memorized it. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I'm here to tell you this morning what that means. So I'm going to guess that even though you have it memorized and you've heard that lots of times, I'm going to guess most of you probably don't know what David has in mind when he writes that. So we're going to go to the life story of David, and I'm going to tell you what he means when he tells God, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. King David had seven wives that were named. He had many other wives, many children. He had uh, at least 20 named sons and daughters, and, and then it says, and many others. Um, kings in those days, you know, they had lots of wives and then lots of princes and princesses that were born into the royal family. And David's wife, Ahinoam, had his firstborn oldest son, Amnon, who would have been the crown prince. He was in line to inherit the throne from his father, um, when King David died. Another wife, Maka or Maka, I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce that, had two children, a son, Absalom, and a daughter, Tamar. And Tamar is particularly gorgeous, and her half-brother, Amnon, falls in love with her and is just wildly, madly in lust for his half-sister, Tamar. Now, at our day, that would be particularly gross, and even taboo, but in those days, and even still today, royals only marry royals. That's why all the British family are all cousins times six, because princesses and princesses only marry each other. And Amnon could have asked to marry Tamar, even though they have the same father, different mothers. Uh, it wouldn't have been an eyebrow-raising thing in their world, but Amnon can't wait. So he forces himself on Tamar, and she says, whoa, no, no, stop. If you will just ask our father, he will give me to you as your wife and the future queen. But Amnon cannot control himself, and he forces himself on his half-sister and steals her virginity, and her life in that world is ruined. She can never be married. She's, even though she's a royal princess, it, her life is over because of what Amnon does. Word gets around, King David finds out, Tamar's older brother Absalom finds out, everybody knows that Amnon has raped Tamar. Tamar has to go into exile essentially for the rest of her life because of the terrible thing that was done to her. And King David does nothing to his oldest son, no discipline at all. So Absalom, Tamar's older brother, swears a secret oath to himself that he will kill Amnon. I will, I will kill my half-brother for what he did to my sister. Everybody with the characters in the story? 
Okay, so a few months pass by, maybe a year or more, but not a whole long time. Absalom keeps this fire of revenge alive in his heart. He's going to kill his brother because he has disgraced his sister. He needs to do it away from his father, away from where it could be stopped. So he plans a feast, a party at a city away from Jerusalem, away from his father's eyes and away from the military and the guards and all of that where he can jump Amnon and kill him. So he has his servants go to a certain city, and I'm, this is all in 2 Samuel. If you want to read this, it's a fascinating uh, episode in Israel's history, uh, but it's so many chapters, we can't just read all the details, so I'm just condensing the story for you. So Absalom takes his servants, and, he, and they plan this party, and he says, I'm going to have Amnon there, and when I jump up and give the word, everybody jump him, and, and we're going to kill him. Absalom throws this party, invites all the princes, all the sons of David to the party, and in the midst of the celebration, once Amnon's had a little bit of wine and may, you know, maybe, not, maybe a little tipsy or whatever, Absalom jumps up and drives his knife into his chest. Thirty of the servants of Absalom jump up and stab Amnon, and, and he's dead. And all of the other sons of David run for their life. They're not sure what's going on, but Absalom just wanted revenge on Amnon. He wasn't there to kill everybody. Word gets back to David, and this time David takes action. He disciplines Absalom. He banishes him from the kingdom. You can never come back to Jerusalem. You're not my son. You will never see my face again. Absalom is now the second born son. He's the, now the oldest surviving son. He should have become king later, but David disowns him. And so Absalom spends the next few years uh, living as an, not an outlaw because there wasn't uh, like an, a wanted dead or alive type of an order against him. He just, he just couldn't come into David's kingdom. David has a general named Joab who tricks David into forgiving Absalom. The story's too much to go into for my purposes this morning. But Joab tricks David into forgiving Absalom and bringing him back into the palace, back into Jerusalem. Absalom comes back, David hugs him, which is his restoration as son and even as crown prince, and they're restored, except that Absalom's heart was not restored because revenge will never give you peace. He is full of hatred still, even though he took his revenge. Justice will never give you peace. Justice will not heal your heart. Punishing somebody who wronged you is not is not going to heal your heart. And it didn't heal Absalom's. That's why in the end, God will give us justice, but only after he has healed us. Because then it won't be revenge. Absalom's heart is now full of hatred for his father. The Bible doesn't say why, but probably I'm guessing because he's mad at David for not executing Amnon in the first place. Why did you not take action against him when he raped my sister? And so for four years, Absalom slinks around the outside of the palace and the outside of the city trying to keep his head down and avoid his father's attention. But the Bible says every day he would go to the, city, to the gate in the city wall. All the ancient world cities had walls around him. He had to come in through the gate and he would sit at the gate of the entrance where anybody who, who had business with the king, any court cases or lawsuits or any legal matters, 
they'd have to come through this particular gate to come into the presence of King David and bring their requests. And Absalom would sit at the gate, and everybody that came from the countryside, all the nation of Israel, he would stop them, and he would kiss up to them. He would win them over. He would kiss their hands and, or shake their hands and kiss their babies, and, and he would tell people, why, why are you here? And they would say, such and such, I have this such and such case, I have this such and such need, I, I have this legal matter. And he would tell them, well, if I was king, I would take care of you. But I'm not, and my dad won't see you. And then he would send them home. And he's lying. King David didn't even know they had come. But they leave thinking that King David has rejected them and Absalom has sided with them. So the Bible says, so Absalom stole the heart of Israel away from King David. For four years, apparently every day, he's out there with flattery and fake smoothness and this nice, this mask of niceness that if I were your king, I would be on your side. But the king we have, he's a loser and he won't hear your case and you're going to have to go home and not get your justice. And he's doing it on purpose. It's rebellion. It's, it's wicked, wicked stuff in Absalom's heart. There are people like that around still today who are very nice to your face, but stab your back in an instant. So Absalom this entire time is planning on stealing the throne from his father, and the day comes, four years after he and David had been restored, for him, when he decides that he's going to take over the nation. He has won enough people, enough allies in the military and in the priesthood at the temple and all of the important people in the land that he decides, today's my day. So he sends everybody to Hebron. Hebron is a, a city away from Jerusalem, far enough away that David couldn't stop him again. And Hebron's in the Bible a lot. It's where Abraham had lived. It's where Sarah and Isaac are buried. Hebron is the place that Caleb took. You remember Caleb, give me my mountain. That's, that's Hebron. He goes to Hebron where David had been king in the transition between David, Saul and David. David had been king in Hebron. It had been a temporary capital city, so it had a little bit of legal leg legitimacy and he goes to Hebron and he says, when I arrive, everybody's going to blow the trumpet and cheer and applaud. And he had some priests that he'd got one to his side. He said, you're going to anoint me with oil and declare me king. And they do. And they declare him king in Hebron. And messengers come to David in Jerusalem and tell him, Absalom has taken the kingdom. He has had himself declared king in Hebron. And he's bringing, he got the entire army of the country to follow him. And so David understands that he has to flee for his life. He knows Absalom already is a murderer. He knows Absalom's heart is so full of bitterness and offense and wickedness, he will kill me. David has to flee Jerusalem, it says, the Bible says, with his household, which means his family and his servants, which would have been several hundred people, but it mostly would have been women and children. He had many wives, many kids and grandkids. David is, King David is probably in his middle to upper 60s at this point. Um, so he's got kids and grandkids along all the royal family and all the royal servants and household. And then he's got his 300 mighty men. You remember those guys, the guys that fight lions with their bare hands, you know, and it's just amazing. And those guys have been with him since the days when he was running from Saul and moving cave to cave, and that was 30 or 35 years ago. All these guys are in their 60s. 
at least their upper 50s for sure. Some of them as old as 70. He's got his 300 mighty men, and he's got 600 Philistines. Now, the Philistines are Israel's enemy, but 600 of them have allied with, it, with King David, and the Bible doesn't tell us where they, why they did that. They're from Gath, which is the city Goliath is from. It's like 45 years ago when David killed Goliath, there was like 600 Philistines that were like, oh, we'll follow him. If he's good enough to kill Goliath, we'll follow this guy. I don't know. There, there says their general, his name was Ittai, and Ittai and his 600 men are loyal to David. Come back to the Philistines later uh, in a little bit. But then the high priest Zadok and some of the other priests from the temple, they go into the Holy of Holies and they grab the ark and they put it on its poles and they carry it out. And this entire group of a thousand people, roughly, runs, flee for their life. They run from Jerusalem. They go down across the Kidron Valley and up the side of the Mount of Olives. The Bible says they all had torn their clothes and thrown ashes on their head, which was a sign of great distress and great mourning. In Bible times, it wasn't just a Jewish thing. All the Middle Eastern cultures did that in those days. When someone would die or when they lost in battle or when there was a disaster of some sort, they would tear their clothes as a sign of grief and mourning, throw ashes on their head and sit barefoot and wail. That's what they would do. David doesn't have time to wail, but it says he left Jerusalem barefoot with torn clothes, ashes on his head. They get to the top of Mount Olives and David's like, wait, wait, stop. I realize we're in a hurry here and our lives are actually under threat, but I have to worship God. God is first in absolutely everything. So the Bible doesn't give us every detail, but I picture that they put the ark down and David here kneels in front of the ark and he worships God. And we have the song that he sang. It's Psalm 3. The title of Psalm 3 tells us this was it. Psalm 3 says, A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. So this is the prayer that David prayed, the song that he sang to God as he's running for his life. Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice and I heard, he heard me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept and I awoke. For the Lord sustained me. I know everybody here, you've got your life story and this tough stuff you've lived through. But I, I doubt if anybody here has been under actual physical threat of your life from your own kid. And David's in some terrible distress. And he is crediting God with the fact that I woke up this morning because my son wants to murder me. That's a big deal. And in the midst of that kind of distress, he stops and worships God in front of the Ark of the Covenant. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves around me round about. Absalom has twenty-five to 30,000 men coming. This is not David talking tough. This is literally true. There are tens of thousands of people coming to attack David, and he has 900 soldiers, at least a third of which are nearing the senior discount. I don't know how old the 600 Philistines are, but I got 900 fighting men. My son has 30,000, possibly. This is going to be a slaughter. I will not fear. Even though 10,000 people 
set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. You have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. Amen. Amen. That's Psalm 3, the song of David. And I, I believe it, he probably sang it right there on the top of the Mount of Olives. To make things even more chaotic and worse, as he is leaving Jerusalem with his family and his 900 fighting men, and as they're going up the Mount of Olives, and probably even as he's worshiping the Lord, there's a man named Shimei who is a relative of the previous king, Saul. And he goes hysterical in hatred of David, and he's throwing rocks and dust and cursing David the entire time. It says he's kicking and screaming and cursing. He's just gone insane with offense and hatred for David. Even as David is worshiping on the top of the Mount of Olives, I picture like Joab having to stand there with a shield over David's head to keep the rocks from hitting him. And Joab asks, this is what the Bible says, Joab asks, can I go take his head off? And uh, he's like close enough that Joab could have just gone over and lopped it off. And David says, no, no, there's going to be enough killing here in a little bit. Uh, we're not going to kill anybody today. David is so despondent that his own son has become his enemy. He's like, I, I'm not my son's enemy. I don't want to fight him. I don't want him dead. But this, this is an absolute disaster. David is so despondent that he, he says, maybe this whole thing is God. Like, I don't even know. Maybe God told him to curse me. That's what he tells Joab. So he won't let Joab kill him. So it, it just this when David is worshiping the Lord, it isn't this nice, quiet, inspirational, goosebumpy, holy moment. He's having rocks and curses thrown at him while he's writing Psalm 3. While he's waiting for his son to arrive with the army and kill him and his men. So they take what's called the Wilderness Road. They go southeast out of Jerusalem and then back around on the other side of the Jordan. And they end up north of Jerusalem about 40 miles at a place called Mahanaim. And Mahanaim shows up in Scripture numerous times. It was named by Jacob nearly a thousand years before King David even lived. Mahanaim is on the Jabbok River in a canyon. It's a dry, deserty, empty, um, with a little creek. It's called a river, but, you know, in the desert creeks get called rivers. They, it takes them probably, it's 40 miles with, with a thousand people, several hundred of which are probably um, women and children. It probably took three to five days to walk up there. They had had to leave in such a hurry that they brought no supplies at all. They didn't have any food or water. And they arrive at this place where David, in decades earlier, had been hiding in the caves and running from King Saul. And uh, and he's like, I, I know how to do this. Before it was just me and my warriors, and now I've got all this group. And they just had, they arrived there where they, he knew there was water and a defensible place where the army couldn't attack them on a big wide open field and surround them. They would have to come up the canyon and have steep walls on either side. They get to Mahanaim and they, they have no food. But David has done this before. He's like, I, I don't need all the palace trappings. I just need God. I don't need all the royal clothes. I don't need all my money. I don't need my palace. I, I'm not going to fight my son. I'm not going to kill him. I just need God. But they didn't need food and water. And a man named Barzillai, who is 82 years old, has gone blind and deaf because of age. The Bible says he's exceedingly wealthy. He shows up. And we're going to read this passage from 2 Samuel 17. Now it happened when David had come to Mahanaim, 
that Shobi the son of Nahash and Machir the son of Amiel and Barzillai the Gileadite brought beds and basins, clay pots of wheat, barley, flour, dried grains and beans, lentils and roasted seeds, honey and curds, meat and cheese for David and the people who were with him to eat. For they said, the people who are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. I am sure this is what David meant when he said, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. When David wrote the 23rd Psalm, I'm sure this is what was on his mind. Because these three men show up with enough dishes and food and beds for over a thousand people. In the most impossible place where provision would never show up. It would never be. Everyone is against me. Everyone has not just abandoned me. They're on their way to kill me. And God provides three friends. The Bible says later in other places that Barzillai was the main one. He's the leader of that. I'm just, I'm just sure that this is what David means when he says, you prepare a table before me. God will take care of you in the most impossible situations. He will not let you avoid difficult situations, even running for your life. But while you do it, he will take care of you. Amen? Amen. So Absalom is a few days' march away with his army of estimating 25, 30,000 or more. And the leaders of the army are not sure that they want to attack David and his 900 men. Like, do you know those 300 men that are with him? We're not sure we want to do that. It's absolutely amazing. You read the details of the whole story. There's actually a day-long debate on how to go about attacking David and his 60-year-old men <laughs> with this army of 25 or 30,000. Well, so the, to, just to finish the story, this is my point and where we're going to hang out for a bit, but just because I know you want to know how the story ends, Absalom does attack. He comes to kill his dad. David and his 900 men fight the entire army of Israel, and in this wilderness desert area, and the Bible makes it very clear, God fought for David, and 900 men killed 20,000 soldiers. They killed 20,000 soldiers. 900 fighting men. Killed 20,000. So I know many of you already know the story, but Absalom is leading the battle through this deserty scrub area, and they've got acacia trees that are very similar to our hawthorn in our valley, and they've got shrubby cedar trees that are very akin to our juniper trees that are around here south of us in the desert. And anyway, so they're fighting in this deserty um, area, and Absalom is famous for his fantastically beautiful head of hair and how, how much hair he had. And the story is that he was riding through and his hair got stuck in a tree branch and the mule kept right on going and ran out from underneath him. And he's hanging by his hair in the tree. And Joab comes along and David had given the strictest orders, do not kill Absalom. He's my son and I love him. Don't kill him. Ab Joab, if you know these characters, you know Joab was a serious bloody man. He walks up with three spears and shoves them right through Absalom's heart. One, two, three. Right out his back while he's hanging by his hair in the tree. In the Bible, God takes credit for Absalom's death. Like, this is 
This wasn't just Joab disobeying David. God killed him for his rebellion against his father. The story goes on from there, but, but that's where I'll, I'll leave off on David's story. But what I want to tell you this morning is that the Lord will provide friends to take care of us in the midst of trouble or heartbreak or exile or rejection, danger, threat, insult, fleeing or need or attack or insurrection, whatever situation that you find yourself in where it seems like it would just be impossible that you would have what you need, he'll prepare a table before you in the presence of your enemies. He will send a barzillai. Barzillai means iron. And the Bible says he sent a man named Iron to strengthen David with food and water. God's going to provide people to come alongside of you who are hard and strong and who will encourage you and give you what you need as you flee your enemies or live through your insurrection or your battle or whatever it is. God will provide. We never, ever have any right to despair. So we do not have a right to despair. David is fine to leave the palace and his wealth and his royal robes and walk out barefoot with ashes on his head. David's like, I'll be fine living in the wilderness. I'm okay in the caves. So I just want to tell you this morning that no matter what comes at us, you will be fine living in a cave because you carry the ark of God in your heart. The ark of the covenant is the Old Testament picture of Jesus. You have Jesus with you wherever you go. So you'll be fine living in a cave. We should not have any expectation that what we currently enjoy will always be ours. But we can't expect that he will make provision in the wilderness for whatever, whatever comes. Jesus is called the son of David. David and Jesus parallel each other in a lot of ways. In this story, David is a picture of Jesus. And I want to point out that as Jesus becomes increasingly unpopular in the world, as more and more people join the army against him, um, David had sons leave and go with Absalom. He had soldiers leave and go with Absalom. And he had priests leave and go with Absalom. We're watching all of that right now with Jesus. I mean, there are, there are preachers leading churches that are anti-Christ. As it becomes more and more expensive to be a disciple of Jesus, you're going to see Israel follow Absalom. By Israel, I mean the church. You're going to see a lot of people that are in church every Sunday find out they're cowards and they're going to follow Absalom. But there are 600 Philistines out there that will side with Jesus any day. Like the people who should be his enemies, who haven't been following him, are going to say, yeah, this is the man I want to follow. Yeah, we're not going with Absalom, we're going with David. Hello. There's going to be a massive flip in who it is that sides with Jesus in the coming days as it becomes more scary and more expensive to follow him. As the, as the world turns against him, a lot of the church will join to save their own skin. And we've got governor's orders and sheriff's letters and contentious school board meetings, people looking at having to quit their jobs because of 
a vaccine requirement, parents having to make very serious decisions about their children's school because of mask and or vaccine requirements and an increasingly intrusive government and an economy that's falling apart and supply shortages in lots of industries. There are lots of enemies around. And uh, the wilderness is encroaching. He will prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies. I got people talking to me from a lot of sides about I'm going to have to quit my job because either the military or the federal government or the state government requires this vaccine. And I know some of you don't understand that. You just went and got the shot and it's no big deal, but, but there's a lot of people that don't want it. And it's their right. Hashtag me too. You ain't putting nothing in my body that I don't give permission. They're perfectly fine to demand that right. So we got some people looking at some real life-changing decisions, some real sacrifices, like what am I going to do if I lose my job? What are we going to do if our kids can't go to school? I'm not saying that we can avoid those troubles. The Lord might save us from them. I don't know what's ahead. This all might get reversed, but probably not. But he will prepare a table before us. Amen. We can't expect to avoid trouble or danger or sacrifice, but look for God to provide in the least likely and the most impossible localities. Seriously, ask Stacy about HVAC ductwork when they were told there is none to be had. All of a sudden, in a matter of days, they have all the ductwork they need to finish their house. And Ken and Becky were told two trusses, roof trusses are two months out. Within a week, they're on, the, they're on the walls, and the roof is on, and we're ready to put windows in. He'd prepare a table before us in the impossible situation, in the desperate, life-defining situations. He provides, even in the physical things that we may or may not need. Thank you, Father, that you prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies. Thank you that we have no reason and even no right to fear. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil because you are with us. Thank you that you provide generous people and friends and even supernatural means to take care of what we need Lord, I pray for the people who are facing employment situations, school teachers and military and state employees and the parents of kids who need to make very big decisions. And it doesn't, it doesn't look fun. It doesn't look good. It looks like wilderness. Thank you that you will provide for everyone as we follow you and obey your will follow the leading of your spirit in what we need to do, you will provide. You will do the impossible. You will provide a feast where there is no way there should be provision. 
You didn't just provide enough. You provided a feast. So I speak peace to every person here and the decisions that they have to make and the fears that they have and the concerns and decisions. And I ask that you, by your Holy Spirit, would guide each one according to your will for themselves and their family, their jobs, their school. In Jesus' name, amen.